open up your chest and you learn how to feel A big bleeding heart go dump, dump, dump And a big old love, that's how you overcome Life slip, come down, now to keep it real Open up your chest and you learn how to feel A big bleeding heart go dump, dump, dump And a big old love, that's how you overcome Tick, tick, we wishing Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned in to Glory Podcast. I'm your host, Monk, M-O-N-K. That's my actual last name, but also acronym for Mamba of Now Knowledge. You can break that down and figure out what it means. And again, glory, that's an acronym too. God's living awareness, holy realized. Yes. I did an episode where we talked about where that came from, right? We're, we're in the glory, like the glory of God. And then when you get sloppy with it, it turns into glory. So we're, we're here about the messiness, the stuff real life gives us and how we navigate that stuff. This is the last episode of season one. We're going to be on hiatus for a couple months after this, uh, producing new content for y'all and just taking a break because, you know, when I mix in all these different episodes, it takes time to prepare and time to produce. And personally, I just like to take a little step back, take a little sabbatical, read, write, absorb, recalibrate. It's good for me. It's good for you. I believe this is episode number 36, which is not bad considering when we started this thing, our goal was just, hey, let's do 10 episodes. If we can do 10 weekly episodes and see where it goes um, and then go from there and it's turned into 36. So just a big shout out to everybody who's been listening, everybody who's been supporting. Again, the way you can help us out the most is two, two things. If you follow us on Instagram, interact with us there, comment on our post, um, join in on the discussions there. And then secondly, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you listen on Apple, you don't realize how much that increases the visibility. So those are the two biggest things you can do to help support the show. Again, if you feel like you got something to add or want to join in on the conversation, you know, hit us up on Instagram or email us at glowerymusic at gmail.com. You can request to be a guest. Some of y'all, um, my homeboys and homegirls out there, y'all have a standing invitation to come over here and chop it up or get on this podcast and chop it up seriously. Just let me know what you want to talk about and we can arrange an episode over some subject matter that's going to help people because that's the whole thing. It ain't about being a superstar and blowing things up. It's about everyday people going through everyday stuff and the tools, the rules, um, and things we can do to help each other walk this thing out because it's messy, man. It's messy. So as promised, this is part two to the Leaders Eat Last podcast. Reader, or reader, not reader, but listener request. Y'all requested it won the poll that we did Leaders Eat Last. It's the last episode of this season, last book of this season. So we did part one last week. So go get 
get that. If you haven't listened to it, you can still listen to this one and it'll help you, but listen to the other one because they kind of go together. It's an episode entitled, Do You Have a Circle of Safety? Right. And so this is back in Cinex, Leaders Eat Last. This is part two of it. So getting back into that concept of the circle of safety, right? You have your circle around what your organization, your family, or the people that you're working with are supposed to be in, and it's outside of your organization are all of the dangers. However, if that circle of safety is small and it doesn't extend to the whole organization or within what is supposed to be the circle of safety, y'all are fighting. You can't address the dangers outside of you i mean this is again goes back to when we lived in small tribes as human beings but you can expand this to like your organization you can't do the work you need to do for your clients or you can't meet the numbers you need to meet selling sell if it's a sales position sales marks etc at infinitum there's my favorite phrase from this season so we're back in the book now um, in small organizations where we are able to know everyone, it is much easier for us to do the work necessary to look after them. We are, for all obvious reasons, more likely to look after the people we personally know than when we don't. If a person on a factory floor knows who the accountant is and the accountant knows who the machinists are, they are more likely to help each other. That is true. Um, I would just say, you know, Working in a community where I've worked, I've, I'm blessed to have been working in the same community for a few years, and I've been working here long enough where people that I work with, work with and know my own biological kids, and then people that I work with, I also work with and teach their biological kids. And it's actually this thing, you feel like, oh, it's going to mess up a personal relationship, but actually it does the opposite it makes me want to do my job better and vice versa. So back in the book, when a leader is able to personally know everyone in the group, the responsibility for their care becomes personal. The leader starts to see those for whom they are responsible as if they were their own family. Likewise, those in the group start to express ownership of their leader. In a Marine platoon of about 40 people, for example, they will often refer to the officer as our lieutenant Whereas the more distant and less seen senior officer is simply the colonel. When this sense of mutual ownership between leader and those being led starts to break down, when informality is replaced by formality is a sure sign that the group may be getting too big to lead effectively. And this is why organizations are broken down into departments and things like that. Generally, that way one group just isn't too big. Um, so back in the book, this means for larger organizations, the only way to manage the scale and keep the circle of safety strong is to rely on hierarchies. A CEO can care about their people in the abstract, but not until that abstraction is mitigated can the care be real. The only way to truly manage at scale is to empower the levels of management. They can no longer be seen as managers who handle or control people. Instead, managers must become leaders in their own right, which means they must take responsibility for the care and protection of those in their charge, confident that the leaders will take care of them. Again, this goes back to the points 
I was making in a previous episode, leadership and management, not the same thing. And here they give a good breakdown in these very large organizations, which I work for an organization now that's much larger than any of the ones I've worked for previously. Well, I take that back. Um, One of the first organizations I worked for was a very large organization. I just worked at a very small branch of a very large organization. We were kind of isolated from the rest of the organization. So it felt like I worked for a really small company. You know, we were one operation. We had nine employees and we felt like a family in that place. And it was like, well, then when we would go to these meetings a couple times a year with the rest of the organization at large, there were people that didn't even know we were part of the organization. They were like, who are you? Where do you work? What department? And they are like, oh, well, we heard of y'all, but, you know. So that was a good experience. Um, but right now, so I have this experience working for what feels like smaller organization, organizations. And now I'm literally working in an environment where the branch, if you will, that I work for is literally like just that one branch is the size of like a whole, um, and whole operation. I was at the last place I was at. So you have these breakdowns into different departments or, um, different ways of breaking it down where you have different quote unquote managers in charge of different things. And this is the distinction Senec makes here is you have to break things down into departments within your organization at large, because like one CEO or a CEO, a CFO, a president and a vice president, they won't be able to manage and have that close care, all the people. So you have to put managers in charge in order to have that close care of the people and you have to invest your trust into those people as they lead. This is a concept um, from extreme ownership. If you guys have read that, I'm going to do that book next, um, next season, but it's a concept there called decentralized command. Um, the managers going out to their different departments have to know the heart and the why behind the mission, the grand mission as given by the leader of the whole thing. And then the leader has to entrust and give those managers room to operate. But here Sinek makes the distinction between management and leadership, and that is Management is just getting the job done right. Leadership is getting the job done, but in the context of actually providing care, modeling care for those under them. Right. Modeling care, that's huge. Again, I've been in some situations where, like that one organization I was working of, we were part of a very large organization, but we were our own small department that was kind of separate and out operating on their own away from the rest of the organization. So it was almost like we were our own real small company. And we felt like just like our family, you know, nine employees and the care exhibited by my boss at that time was 
I mean, it was unparalleled. She gave you confidence to do the job that you needed to do. She gave you a lot of gray area in which to operate and trusted that you would do it. And then she would get your back in any way, shape, or form that she could. Um, And I just shout out to her. I'm not going to say her name on the air, but... It was her care and her confidence in me that allowed me to grow as a professional and have the confidence to move up the ranks and try some other things. Um, She also hired me when I was severely unqualified for the job also. She just said she got a good sense. She got a good vibe from me in the interview and hired me there on the spot. She trusted her gut. So there's God working for you there. But... How do you provide care, right? How do you be a leader, not a manager, right? You provide care, but what does care look like? So um, Sinek in this part of the book breaks down. He gives them a bunch of rules to abide by to basically try to ensure you're leading more from this place of care rather than from this place of just strict management. And the first rule, or not the first rule, this is rule number four. There's a bunch of rules and recommendations you give. But rule number four is give them time, not money. All right, money can, if you're underpaid, I I get that. But one of the points he makes here is like if you give people time and you show that you respect their time, Um, That's going to say a lot more in a lot of senses than just giving someone a raise and then increasing the demand you put on them with the raise. Um, I mean, if you're underpaid, that's one thing. But studies have shown, and as this book, if you go through this book yourself, shows that people will take pay cuts and people will work for less. They feel like they're respected, they're valued, and they're competent in what they do. All right. So rule number four, you give them time, not money. Back in the book, uh, let's say you're moving to a new house. To help you out, one of your friends pays for the moving company. A very generous offer worth $5,000. Another friend comes to your house and helps you pack the boxes, load the truck, travel with you to the new house, unload and unpack the boxes. Two weeks later, both friends need a favor from you on the same day. Which would you feel more inclined to help? The one who wrote the check or the one who committed time and energy? Money is an abstraction of tangible resources or human effort. It is a promissory note for future goods and services. Unlike the time and effort that people spend on something, it is what money represents that gives it its value. And, as an abstraction, it has no real value to our primitive brains which judge the real value of food and shelter or the behavior of others against the level of protection or safety they can offer us someone who gives us a lot of money as our brains would interpret their behavior is not necessarily as valuable to our protection as someone willing to commit their time and energy to us right so money is an abstraction it's something we've created It's something as a medium of exchange. It's not really hardwired into us at a biological level to perceive someone giving you money as someone who's really got your back. Although money is valuable, right? If we go back to how our brains are wired biologically, 
we're going to perceive more value, whether we realize it or not, beyond the constructions of our civilization. Someone that's giving us time and effort, we're actually going to attach more value to that biologically. And think about that. Go back, to, you know, kind of in your head, pause the recording even, and sit with that. And just think about times where you've given a lot of time, energy, and effort, or people have given a lot of time, energy, and effort to you. And sit with that and think about, was that more valuable than giving money towards something or someone giving money to you? Again, I have countless examples of that in my own life. Uh, But we're back in the book. Given our obsessive need to feel safe among those in our tribe, our communities, and our companies... We inherently put a premium value on those who give us their time and energy. Whereas money has relative value, $100 to a college student is a lot, $100 to a millionaire is a little. Time and effort have an absolute value. No matter how rich or poor someone is, or where or when they are born, we all have 24 hours in a day and 365 days in a year. If someone is willing to give us something of which they have a fixed and finite amount, a completely non-redeemable commodity, we perceive greater value. If we waste money, we can make more, especially in our society. But we've all had the experience of sitting in a meeting or watching a movie or maybe even reading this book and thinking to ourselves, I will never get this time back. You can save time if you stop reading now, but I cannot give back the time you spent to get here. Sorry. Right. So an example there, right? Money is something that we can create more of. Time, unfortunately, is not. And so the distinction he's making here is that time is more valuable because you can't make more of it. And it's, it's this weird thing, too, because in our society, money is a thing that represents the time you've put in to do something. And it's ironic because the people that have the most money typically have a way to buy themselves free time or leisure time, so to speak. Or at least that's our perception. You go interview these, these people and the machine they've created to make the money is now running them. All right. But if you get to a certain point... With a certain amount of money in the bank, you can have all the leisure time that you want. Right. But that time is finite. And that's the real value, he says. It's like when you give your time, your effort, and your energy towards something. Or it's such a waste on your energy where, you know, I've worked in places where we have meetings just to have meetings. And there's nothing worse than sitting in a meeting at the end of a day or end of a week. And the meeting isn't doing anything. It doesn't provide any value for anyone. No one there even wants to be in the meeting. But we're having the meeting just because we're supposed to have the meeting. And it's just like, shout out to, to bosses here, leaders here. If, if that can be a PowerPoint or an email you send out to your people and say, hey, here are the bases we need to cover. Just... Um, scroll through this real quick, skim through it, make sure you're solid on all that. Let me know if you have questions because I want to respect your time. And people who say I want to respect your time all the time, <laughs> it's usually an indication of they feel like they're not. Um, <clears throat> back in the book, it's not just time. 
The energy we give also matters. If a parent goes to watch a kid's soccer game but looks up from their mobile device only when there's cheering, they may have given their time, but they haven't given their energy. The kid will look over to see the parent's head down most of the game, busy texting or emailing the office or something. Regardless of the intentions of that parent, without giving their attention, the time is basically wasted for both the parent and the child. The same is true in our offices when we talk to someone while reading our emails or sit in a meeting with one eye on the phone. We may be hearing all that is said, but the person speaking will not feel we are listening. And an opportunity opportunity to build trust or to be seen as a leader who cares is squandered. Just as a parent can't buy the love of their children with gifts, a company can't buy the loyalty of their employees with salaries and bonuses. What produces loyalty, that irrational willingness to commit to the organization when even when offered more money elsewhere, is the feeling that the leaders of the company would be willing when it matters to sacrifice their time and energy to help us. We will judge a boss who spends time after hours to help us as more valuable than a boss who simply gives us a bonus. When we hit a target. All right. So again, time, not only given to employees as a matter of respect, but if you're in leadership, giving of your own time to help or even to make an appearance at certain events, certain projects, whatever the case for your organization. This could also be with family. This could be with your neighbors in your community. Um, giving of your time communicates more than if you were just to throw some money at someone. It's like Jesus said, though. He's like, if there's a need, meet it. You're not going to ask God for a fish and he give you a snake. However, sometimes our companies, our organizations, or even us in our community, somebody has a need to be met and we just throw some money at them. But what they really need is your time or they need some connection. And that's the thing I say to people, especially you youngsters listening. You might not have a lot of money to give towards something. That's all right. Go volunteer some of your time in doing something for people, for others. Without the expectation of a return on an investment also. So see a lot of the youngsters trying to pad the resumes. And so they go do these volunteer opportunities but it's like that energy piece Cynic was talking about there. You're doing it simply for the sake of having something cool to put on your resume. So your energy and your focus really isn't there other than I got to get the job done so I can check this off my list. Calling you out. Back in the book. In a weak culture, we veer away from doing the right thing in favor of doing the thing that's right for me. When cultural standards shift from character values or beliefs to performance, numbers, and other important dopamine-driven measurements, our behavior-driving chemicals fall out of balance and our will to trust and cooperate dilutes. Like adding water to a glass of milk, eventually the culture becomes so watered down it loses all that makes it good and healthy. And by then it only looks like or vaguely tastes like milk. We lose our sense of history, of responsibility to the past, and of shared tradition. We care less about belonging. In this kind of weak culture, we veer away from doing the right thing in favor of doing the thing that's right for me. To work for Goldman Sachs used to mean something more. 
It wasn't just a description of a place of employment for those who fit the culture. It said something about what kind of person they were. It told the outside world that they could expect from them. It was largely positive and a person could take pride in the association. But the leaders of the company didn't protect what took so long to build. You see this happen a lot. You have a good organization, the good organization changes leadership. It's like you handing the new leader the keys to the Ferrari. Dad's handing you the keys to the Ferrari. Vroom, vroom. Right? It's been serviced. It's got new tires. Everything's ready to go. All you got to do is drive it around and not wreck it. And then get the oil changed when you need to. And get the tires balanced. It's an easy job. You don't have to actually build the Ferrari. But then what happens? Right? You don't understand what it took to build a Ferrari. So then you start changing things or you start focusing on the wrong stuff. And then what was formerly a great organization, company, project, whatever, has now been run into the dirt and the public perception of that organization has changed. As Goethe, that's Goethe, right? G-O-E-T-H-E, the author, um, thinker, right? Wrote Faust. Um, but you pronounce it Gutta. As Gutta, the great 19th century thinker, I'm back in the book, reportedly summed up, you can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. If character describes how an individual thinks and acts, then the culture of an organization describes the character of how a group of people and how they think and how they act as a collective. A company of strong character will have a culture that promotes treating all people well not just the ones who pay them or earn them money in the moment. In a culture of strong character, the people inside the company will feel protected by their leaders and feel that their colleagues have their backs. In a culture of weak character, people will feel any protection they have comes primarily from their own ability to manage the politics, promote their own successes, and watch their own backs through some, though some are lucky enough to have a colleague or two to help. I'll say this in working with different organizations. There's nothing worse that feels like you're busting your butt on a job, doing everything that's asked for you, and then going even above and beyond what's being asked for you, and then being overly criticized or feeling like the people who are in charge of you are only operating in their own interests. They don't care about you, and they're just trying to hit numbers. We talked about that in the last episode, but having been in that situation before, right, you end up working in this culture, this climate where nothing feels safe, and then that starts to bleed over into your personal life. And this is the thing we haven't done a good job of in our cultures and our companies, I think, is it's the separation of church and state, right? It's the separation between the the public and the personal. It's the separation between your work life and your home life. And that's dumb, y'all. I'm not saying everyone you work with needs to be your friend. You need to have them over for dinner and vice versa. But what I am saying is like what happens at work, what happens in our organizations affects our personal life. Me as the leader of the fam- my family, me as husband to my wife, father of my kids, all right, if I'm dealing with certain things in my job and I feel like I'm not cared for at my job, I carry that into my house. 
regardless of how much I try to deal with it and separate it, even if I leave it there, it work that energy that drains me. If I'm having to fight and fight and fight at my job, I bring that into my household. So you as a leader of an organization, or you just at your workplace, you have to understand that when you're dealing with people on the daily, how you deal with them, what you deal to them, how you treat them, what the culture of the company or organization you have That is all going to affect your personal life, your life outside of work. That's the truth. If we go into our work with more of this perspective, we would treat each other better. And then especially those in leadership, you're going to understand if it's if I'm not just out here trying to protect myself. And I'm protecting the people underneath me. And I have their back. They're actually going to do better for me. It's going to be better for everybody else. The thing is, it's it's hard to do. It takes grit. It takes resilience to do so. It takes vulnerability on your part, which is something that necessarily isn't modeled. Especially in our MBA programs and things like that. So another key point. So how does authority work or how should authority work in organizations that build trust? Sinek has a cool idea here. He says, um, you give authority to those closest to the information. Meaning like that CEO or president or vice president might not know as much about what's going on directly in the sales department than let's say your salesman on the ground or the manager of your salespeople. So here's what you do. Although the CEO, vice president, or whatever has the authority over the company, he or she would be more profitable and be better off giving the authority over the salespeople to the person in charge of the salespeople. Right? So you delegate that task out And now they have the authority because they're the one who's closest to the information of that one specific thing. Again, the leader in charge of everything needs to be seeing the war, not necessarily the battle. And then you give authority over these battles to those people that you delegate out to. So let's break this concept down a little more. I'm in the book. Those at the top explains Captain Marquette, have all the authority and none of the information. Those at the bottom, he continues, have all the information and none of the authority. Not until those without information relinquish their control can an organization run better, smoother, faster, and reach its maximum potential. The problem, Captain Marquette says, was that he was addicted to being in control. So um, just caveat here in this part of the book, these are based on a series of interviews with Captain Marquette. I think he was with the U.S. Navy or the Air Force, and he was reflecting on his time there in increased productivity in his platoons. And he says, um, yeah, he was addicted to being in control, and so he's going through this process of how he changed how he ran his crews, and he got much better results. So back in the book, and the crew, 
as in so many organizations that follow a flawed interpretation of hierarchy, were trained for compliance. In organizations in which few take responsibility for their own actions, at some point something bad is going to happen. Something bad was probably highly preventable. One can't help but think again about the companies that suffer their organization or that suffer thanks to the decisions of a few selfishly minded people within their organizations. Whether these individuals act unethically, commit a crime, or simply work counter to the interests of the organization, neither they nor their leaders seem to take responsibility. Instead, they point fingers. Sounds familiar. Republicans blame Democrats and Democrats blame Republicans and when things don't get done. Mortgage companies blame the banks and the banks blame the mortgage companies for the 2008 financial meltdown. Let us be grateful none of them are responsible for the care of nuclear-powered submarines. It is the leader's job instead to take responsibility for the success of each member of his crew. It's the leader's job to ensure that they are well-trained and feel confident to perform their duties, to give them responsibility, and to hold them accountable to advance the mission. So again, it's giving that leadership, giving the ownership, giving the responsibility out to the people that are closest to the information. So rather than giving them a bunch of rules, laws, and regulations to follow so they do so out of compliance, also you you see intimidation and fear driving a lot of this motivation. Give them the responsibility over that task and that shared responsibility lower in the quote-unquote hierarchy It's actually going to cause those people to work better, take more responsibility, take more ownership of it. All right, so we're back in the book here. A little bit about, um, again, getting back into time and how we deal with information. So, again, those closest to the information, those those are the ones you want to have more authority in that realm. Uh, Back in the book, as humans... Social animals, we're hardwired to constantly assess the information people give us and the actions they perform. It is a constant and ongoing process. We do not trust someone after they tell us just one thing, even if it is the truth. Trust evolves once we have enough evidence to satisfy our brain that a person or an organization is indeed an honest broker. This is the reason integrity For it to work must be a practice and not simply a state of mind. Integrity is when our words and our deeds are consistent with our intentions. A lack of integrity is at best hypocrisy and at worst lying. The most common display of a lack of integrity in the business world is when a leader of an organization says what others want to hear and not the truth. This is the reason we don't trust politicians. Though we may sit down with a list of statements a politician has made and agree with every single one of them, the reason we tend not to trust them is because we suspect they do not believe all the things they are saying. We don't even agree with everything our close friends and family say or believe, so it stands to reason that if a politician is in perfect alignment with us, they are not being completely honest. So that integrity piece, making sure your deeds and your words and your intentions all line up. And again, that's modeled through action. That's modeled through time. That's modeled through service. You know, a lot of different ways this can be modeled in our workplaces. So, 
That's a little food for thought there. And you see it, you know, especially when leadership changes hands or new employees get into the mix in companies or organizations, right? They get in and you might make a show, but it's that consistent of saying what you do, that consistency of saying what you do and doing what you say. And then actually believing it. So that and that's a hard thing too. Like if you're working for an organization and you don't necessarily believe in the mission, you got to find a way to get yourself there or find something else to do. Especially if you're in leadership. So here's an interesting one coming from some studies, different types of leadership. Um... The difference between directive leadership and empowering leadership. So a directive leader is one who gives orders, gives commands, and expects them to get done. And empowering leadership is going to, again, delegate out responsibility and be more concerned with your growth. All right, so back in the book, teams led by a directive leader initially outperform those led by an empowering leader. However, despite lower early performance, teams led by an empowering leader experience higher performance improvement over time because of higher levels of team learning, coordination, and empowerment, and mental model development. In other words, all the benefits of higher performing teams are direct results of feeling safe among their own and believing that their leaders have their well-being at heart. Any other model is simply a gamble that the next genius will be as good as the one who left, irrespective of how strong the rest of the company could be. This gamble on the next guy theory has an unbalanced importance and uncomfortably high risk of to succession planning. If the new leader can't command and control as effectively as their predecessor did, it is doubtful any inside the organization will put themselves at risk to advance the leader's vision. They will be too busy trying to protect themselves from each other. Um, so again, we like those type of take charge, go, you know, nose to the grindstone, bludgeon everybody type of leaderships. It's more authoritarian types and they'll get good numbers in the short term. But ultimately the culture you create behind that type of leadership is it creates this culture where Right, We're just trying to be compliant. The people under them are trying to be compliant. But when you're more worried about being compliant, what it is is actually fear. It's fear that you haven't crossed all your T's, you haven't dotted your I's, and you don't feel safe. So when you don't feel safe, you always feel like your neck's on the chopping block. You're looking over your shoulder. You share less with the people around you or the people at the same level as you. When you do share, it becomes all of this gossip. Trying to guess what the leader wants next, guess who's coming in, who's coming out, becomes all this real toxic gossip instead of taking care of each other. We are going to self-protect, and it really becomes leadership against those underneath the leadership is what it ends up becoming. Um, Whereas an empowering leader creates that circle of safety, expands the circle of safety and provides care for the people underneath them. Now, again, the studies show like short term, that type of leadership may or may not 
get as good, perform as well, say in year one, but you look five years down the road, 10 years down the road under that type of leadership, um, they're going to do, they're going to outperform exponentially, exponentially. Like they did studies over this where they looked at companies that tracked over 10 years and they literally did like a hundred times as much business. Man, companies with more of an authoritarian structure. All right, so that's just something to think about in terms of leadership and how you lead. Um, I'm going to do a couple more and we'll wrap this baby up. So this gets back to some of the incentive structures we have in our companies. Um, something just to think about again. So we have... Chemicals in our brains, right? We have dopamine, which provides sort of an addictive mechanism in our brains. This is the reason why we compulsively check our phones, right? Right, you're, you're compulsively checking your phone or, you know, you, you can't resist that drink before bedtime or eat the junk food. A lot of that, um, not getting into the emotional side, just the brain chemistry of it is dopamine. You want that little hit of dopamine. It provides you some motivation in the short term, but in the long term, it can be destructive. We have these other chemicals that bond us to people and bond us to our environment, like serotonin, that runner tie, the thing you get from doing something hard, actually provides way more benefits and regulates your endocrine system and the rest of your hormones, serotonin does, as opposed to dopamine. And then there's also something called oxytocin, and that's a chemical our body produces when we feel close to other people. It's that warm, connected feeling you feel when you hold a baby or, you know, um, you hold your kids, right? And so those are the types of incentives we would want to have and place within our organizations incentives that would increase, say, like serotonin or oxytocin from a brain chemistry standpoint. Um, but Cynic's argument here is the way our incentive structures are wired in all, most of our companies, it relates to these dopamine triggers. For the most part, the incentive structures we offer inside our companies do not reward us for cooperating, right? Cooperating, oxytocin, sharing information or reaching across the company to offer and ask for help. In other words, there's little positive reinforcement when it comes to behaviors and actions critical to maintaining the circle of safety. So basically, everybody knows we need a circle of safety other than our companies and organizations, but our incentive structures, the things that actually provide benefit for us at work materially, um, the things that would provide us those benefits aren't built it into our incentives. So how will we find a way to incentivize people to act in a way that would basically build our circle of safety? All right. So back in the book. Um, the overuse of extrinsic rewards follows the same logic. Giving out awards is good. Giving out awards to everyone who participates is not necessarily better. So this is getting into a section called the abstract generation. And so this is talking about millennials and Gen Zers and how since our workplace is being filled with millennials now, Gen Zers coming up. 
Um, we're the first time in history where we have four to five generations that could be working in these same, right? We have baby boomers, right? We have baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, and Gen Zers all working, all in the workplace at the same time, right? And a few years ago, you even had, um, even had the greatest generation, baby boomers, boomers, Gen Xers, and millennials all working in the same, um, potentially could be all working at the same workplace for the same company. So these differences in the generations and how they interact causes a lot of strife. And, you know, you look at, you have millennials working under you or Gen Zers working under you, but you yourself are a Gen Xer, you're a baby boomer, right? Those are two very different worldviews. So you as a leader have to understand those who are working under you and how they view the world, at least to an extent, um, in order to be a better leader over them because they're not going to see the world the same as you. What's going to motivate them isn't going to be the same either. So that's what they're getting into. And with the millennials and the Gen Zers, it was this first generation where everybody gets an award because we, um, we don't want anyone to feel bad. So Synex getting into this a little bit of like, say, so how do you navigate these waters? So giving out awards is good. I'm back in the book. Giving out awards to everyone who participates is not necessarily better. Um, but that doesn't mean that telling our kids they are great at everything is necessarily better. Um, the thinking behind the participation awards, another hallmark of millennial childhood, is that it can boost confidence and keep students engaged in something they might otherwise quit because, for example, they feel they're not good at it. Unfortunately, the unintended consequences may outweigh the perceived benefits. Research shows that more extrinsic, extrinsic rewards do not add up to greater inner drive. In fact, they have the opposite effect, a decline in intrinsic motivation, nor do extrinsic rewards motivate children or any of us in the long term the most, excuse me, they provide as a short-term lift. If children see the reward as the only reason for doing something, Studies show that once the reward is gone, they will have even less interest in the activity they did when they started. This is the same reason why extrinsic dopamine-based reward system, like hit the goal, get the bonus, when used as the primary means of incentivizing behavior in a work environment, can't and don't breed trust, loyalty, or commitment. Right? So, again, the extrinsic rewards and that focus on the extrinsic rewards, right, as being the only motivation that actually hurts you long term and actually once the reward's gone, right? So the idea is we used to do this in classrooms all the time. Oh, give kids candy if they do a good job in class, right? They're doing a good job, doing a good job, doing a good job, doing a good job, right? They get a piece of candy. It's like Pavlov's dog theory well then what happens they do a good job one day they don't get a piece of candy they don't like being there they don't they don't say it's a it's a math kid and they're in an english class they don't care about the english and care about math but they're doing a good job because they're getting that piece of candy or they're getting a good grade right but you take the candy away or they work really hard on something but still make a bad grade the incentive is not on the improvement. The incentive is on, oh, well, you, now you took the award away. So 
why the heck am I busting my butt trying to do a good job? Now I don't have any motivation to do so. All right, so you have to focus the incentive structure onto building safety into an improvement focus. At some point, the motivation has to be internal. That's all there is to it, right? So how do we do that? There's a lot of different ways to focus on that, but it goes back to what Sinek was saying about character. Character of organizations and a lot of my podcast and this podcast has been about building the character internally because you could receive that thing that you want and that you say you want, but if you haven't built the character necessary to do so, you will not be able to wield the thing you are saying that you want to get, that blessing God puts on you. And if you're really a follower of the way, you're on the path, (laughs) that thing's going to be withheld from you until your character's in the right spot. So, back in the book, we got two more and we're done, baby. So, even when they made mistakes while growing up, I'm back in the book. Too many millennials were not forced to take personal responsibility for their behavior. One veteran teacher who now teaches other teachers how to teach told me a story about how a fight broke out in a new teacher's classroom. The new teacher broke up the fight, but he decided not to report the incident to the principal. The next day, a parent of one of the students involved in the fight came to the school and complained to administrators that the teacher's classroom was in chaos. Without the years of experience, they may have at least helped shield a more senior teacher. The first-year teacher was fired. The incident continues to follow him in his career. The students, on the other hand, suffered little to no repercussions. Consistent with the patterns of, you can do no wrong... It was the parents' instinct to blame the teacher and the school before holding the children accountable. So, yeah, there could have been improvements made in that teacher's classroom. That teacher might not have followed protocol, though um, depends on the nature of the fight. You know, a lot of districts have these um, no-tolerance policies when it comes to fighting. So a little schoolyard scrap like I would have gotten in back in the day, which I did get in back in the day, that, you know, we might have got detention and that was it. Or teacher might have said, teacher might have known us. It goes back to knowing your community. It goes back to being in connection with people. Oh, your friends, your friends. Oh, that must have been a minor disagreement. Y'all get over it, Right. Let's not get admin involved in this, <clears throat> All right? Y'all squashed it. Y'all settled it. Y'all are better than that. Now go on about your day, you know, but whatever the case in this scenario, um, could have been handled differently. Teacher probably should have reported it. Um, but look at who took all the blame. Did the teacher take any blame or did the kids take any blame? The kids are the ones who got in a fight. Right, and I see this all the time in my profession. I'm a teacher. Right? Did the kids take any ounce of the blame? Did the, the kid who was in the fight, either of them, who whether who caused it or who who did not, right, get in a fight in the classroom? Did they? Did they take any? No. The parent immediately calls the school, calls up the administrator. So for, first of all, that's that's not even the proper chain of command, proper protocol. When you enroll your kid in a district, first of all, right, you communicate with the teacher first, 
And if y'all can't find a solution, then you go up to the campus level administrator. And if they can't find a workable solution, then you go up to district level administration. Right. But we don't operate that way anymore because it's little Johnny, little Susie. We don't want them to feel any pain, right? Because being held accountable is hard. And being held accountable requires you to feel some uncomfortable emotions. Yeah, I got into the fight. Why'd you get into the fight? Because I called Johnny a bad name across the room. Um, or I whispered it to him. Or I texted it to him. You know, in class, when I should have been learning, I should have been following what the teacher wanted me to do, but instead I was doing something else, and that escalated, and that's how the fight started. It wasn't whether the teacher was doing their job or not. All right, it's the kid who was not doing what the kid was supposed to do, and now the kid has learned in this scenario that, oh, I can do whatever I want. I do not get held accountable for it. We hold other people accountable for my mistakes and then other people suffer the consequences of my actions. And these are the generations we have coming up, y'all. This is what we are teaching them. Holding kids accountable, holding yourself accountable is not bad. It's not a bad thing. It's how you learn. It's how you grow. But guess what? Being held accountable is hard and it requires you to go through some very uncomfortable emotions. Sometimes, trust me, I know. I'm in the middle of it right now myself. I might share some of that journey in the next season. We'll see. So, teach how to give and receive feedback. This is the last thing I'm going to cover and then we'll be done. So, he's got a section in the book of how to work with millennials and things that will help working with millennials and Gen Zers. In your workplaces. So the big one is, um, he says, teach how to give and receive feedback. And this is big because giving and receive, receiving feedback among generations is different. So there are many ways to do this back in the book. For example, our company has developed its very own 360 review system. Once a year, each person on a team is asked to write down their top three strengths or areas they believe they've most improved and their three biggest weaknesses on areas they feel they need the most growth. Everyone's answers are consolidated into one document and shared with every member of their team. Um, Then take whatever time it takes, half a day or a full day, depending on the size of the team, to go through it all. Each person must first read their weaknesses, and anyone who wants can add or comment to that list. At this time, the person sharing their list may not speak. They are prohibited from defending themselves or offering excuses. Their job is to listen. Immediately after, the person reads their strengths, and again, anyone else can add or comment on the list. Again, the person being reviewed may only listen. At most, we allow clarifying questions. Someone takes responsibility to run the meeting to ensure that anything outside of these parameters is quickly shut down. It's an amazing experience. The most junior person on my team had the opportunity to tell me how I let her down and how I make her feel when I say or do certain things. It was completely eye-opening for me, and it was empowering for her to feel heard. We don't use this process as part of our formal evaluations, but rather as a growth tool. We are all also members of smaller coaching pods that meet for an hour once a week or once every other week throughout the year to help each other build on what we've learned in this review session. 
So it's a way of sharing the collective responsibility for growth and improvement. But I think that's a very important thing is in whatever organization you're in, whatever team you're a part of, knowing the proper ways to send and receive feedback is hugely important. And the caveat I would add here is it can't always be the formal evaluation being the only way you get feedback. You need the informal feedback from people on a consistent and regular basis as well. So that's it, y'all. This is the end of season one. It's been a great ride. So we're taking a break till February. Right now it's November. We'll be prepping more episodes in the meantime. Already got some cool interviews lined up. Working on some new music. And really the main thing is, is um, I'm cranking this book out. And so if all goes according to plan, I'm going to be partnering episodes with this book that I will be releasing. But in the meantime, interact and engage with us on Instagram. I'm at XXMONKXX and then the podcast is at Glory on Instagram. Engage with us there. Let us know what you want to see more of. And then like, share, and subscribe on those platforms. Share with your friends. If you want to get in on an episode, let me know. Let me know what angle. Like, Send me a little, just a quick little proposal. You can send me a direct message or you can email me. But it's been quite the journey so far, friends. As always, peace and blessings to you from the Most High. It's your boy, Monk, and I'm out.